Hello, listeners. I'm Bridget. And I'm Caroline. You are listening to the sixth episode of Hearth, Home, and Homicide, a family production about family murders. My daughter Caroline and I narrate each story, and son Andy is our producer. As Caroline and I talk about each family murder, we keep sensitivity for victims and their families in our mind. Our podcasts do include violence and trauma. Listener discretion is advised. So, hey, Caroline, how are you doing? Well, hey, I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm good. You know, I heard that uh, Luke has gone to uh, football camp, and I just thought about you and what it would be like because I've sort of been there where your kids start growing up. And so I'm hoping you're doing okay with that growing up phase. Yeah, it does come as a shocker. I mean, I think everybody has their own experience, but there's definitely a a very unfamiliar but welcome sense of joy and pride there. It's mixed up with all those elements, isn't it? It is. Well, you know, Caroline, um, we we do only murders in a family because we're really interested in what what's going on in this family, what happened, and um, and today our show is kind of I mean it is about a murder, but it's also about the mom of the victim. And for me, for me, we'll see how our listeners feel about it. So we're going to have to travel to Florida. It's kind of hot there right now. So, but here we go. It, we're going to uh, land in near or around Fort Lauderdale. Um, we're talking about a twisted family murder. And what I mean by that is it's got a lot of twists and turns. However, the one thread going through this entire convoluted story of betrayal and murder is one constant, and that is the victim's mother. And the time and the energy and the money she spent delivering justice for her son, even though nobody else could even see her or hear her, really. She just was, she, she just was not somebody people were listening to until they did. So we're going to talk about this mom. And I don't know about you, but I think about some of the things I did as a mother. And it's like, how did I do that? Where did I get the energy and focus to do that? But I did because of, you know, just the mother drive and the love. Yeah. There's a, there's a drive there that's, yeah, unmatchable, I think. And I, and I would say that that also goes for dads too, but I think it's, it's more pronounced and more common maybe in the moms. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah, there are dads. I mean, there are plenty of, of murders that happen where the, the wife and the, and the uh, husband are, in tandem looking for their missing child or their murdered victim trying to find justice. So, uh, but in this one, it's the mom. So let's begin with the victim of our story. His name, Jerry Michael Williams, was known as Michael or Mike. And uh, we'll just call him Mike today. He was born October 16th, 1969. His loving father was a Greyhound bus driver. And his mom, Cheryl, decided to stay home, and she ran a daycare 
in their double wide trailer. And so they were both earning a salary, but one of them was home all the time. And uh, so uh, Mike and his older brother, Nick, would always have their mom close at hand. And both boys worked at a local grocery store to help their parents save money for their education. So here we really see a family all pulling in the same direction. We're going to build a future, and it's going to be something that our children will carry on uh, because we're saving money. Interestingly and tellingly, I think, instead of building a house, which they talked about, the parents saved their money so that both of their boys could attend private schools. Geez, that's not cheap. Anyway, including North Florida Christian High School. So they went through private schools all the way, and they went to North Florida Christian High School. There Mike thrived, and he was a standout. He was president of the student body. So that tells me he was, like, affable, very likable, to get the votes of the student body. And personable out there. Personable, yeah. Warm guy. Anyway, he played football, just like Luke. Anyway, he played football. He was very active in the key club. Now, I remember the key club as a very popular student service-based club that was going on in many high schools in the 70s and 80s. And the key club is still active today. Now, I was not a member of the key club. I was into drama and debate. So... Uh, I but I remember not, the key club. I wasn't in any formalized clubs, really. It wasn't my thing. No, and you know, I don't, I don't, I don't do clubs anymore. But I used to. Anyway, interestingly enough, uh, when he was fifteen, uh, Mike began duck hunting as a hobby. And Caroline, what I know about any kind of bird or fowl hunting in the South is that you, and maybe this is the same everywhere, you have to get up really early in the morning. You have to start very early in the morning. I used to quail hunt with my father and my brother in Georgia, and I had to get up at four in the morning to go with them out to the field. And we had to start hunting just as the sun was coming up. So I guess that's when they come out and feed and things like that. And we would be home cleaning those birds by noon. And, you know, here I want to apologize to all the birds that I cleaned because I feel bad now. Plus, I'm a bird watcher now, and I, you know, I just am trying to make living amends, I guess. Hey, I bet those birds that you watch hate quails too, Mom. It's okay. Okay. (laughs) For Mike Williams and sportsmen and sportswomen like him... There were so many marshes and lakes in Florida devoted to fishing and duck hunting, and there still are. And it was when he was 15 and discovered duck hunting that he also came to know a fellow student named Denise, Denise Merrill, whom he would one day marry. They were both in the ninth grade at the time they met and fell in love, and they shared a mutual friend. His name was Brian Winchester. Brian would stay friends with both of them over time, and Brian and Mike became the best of friends, so they were besties. They did a lot of things together. After graduating from North Florida Christian, Mike went on to college, attending Florida State University, where he majored in political science and urban planning. 
even before he could graduate with honors, though, he was hired. He was like headhunted by Ketchum Appraisal Group as a property appraiser. He distinguished himself as the, quote, hardest working man I ever saw, according to the company's owner. Now, you know, that's a high compliment. Definitely. As he married his sweetheart, Denise Merrill, in 1994, he would often go home for dinner and be with his family. He would return to work after she, Denise, and later their daughter as well, went to bed. And he sometimes went into the office when they were sleeping. So he was really driven. He would also sometimes go duck hunting. And then on the way home from duck hunting, he would go in with his duck hunting outfit and, you know, get work done then. So according to his mother, Mike was making $200,000 annually by the time of his disappearance, which was in 2000. That's about $350,000 in 2023. So I'm gobsmacked. Yeah, that's like... That's like the new minimum wage here in the inflated 2023s. Wow, way to go, Mike. (laughs) That's a really good point. He and Denise had bought a home in a small upscale subdivision of the east side of the city. So in 1999, this would be a, a year before he died, Mike's only child, a daughter, Ainsley, was born. His co-workers said that he was as devoted to her as he was to his work. But the following year, his father died. And about this time, Mike and his wife took out a $1 million life insurance policy on Mike's life. So, I mean, I guess maybe his father's death made Mike realize he needed the peace of mind that his family would never go without if something were to happen to him. Or maybe it was because he had a baby. In fact, uh, his best friend, Brian Winchester, was an insurance agent, and Brian was able to help Mike with the purchase of that very million-dollar policy. You know, there were some other policies that he had that were related to his work, but this was the big one that he took out. It was December 2000 that Mike Williams was murdered by his wife, and his best friend, Brian Winchester. Ouch. What a gut punch it is to find out that this man has been murdered, just betrayed in the worst possible way by his wife and his best friend. Well, especially when he sounds sounds like a fun-loving family man, so it's you know, the people in his life being the ones betraying him is just like, yeah, like you said, just a gut punch. It, it, to me, it brings up feelings of how do I ever know another person? What are they really thinking? Right. And that can lead to a lot of rumination that never goes anywhere and can never be unproved or disproved or proved or whatever. That's it. This is the this is what a lack of trust will do. I mean, when you can't trust on a basic level, that's a problem. But I mean, this is like humanity trust shaking, right? I mean, these are your 
your best friend and your childhood sweetheart? Like, ugh. I guess part of it is, you know, just because somebody's your best friend, just because somebody's your childhood sweetheart, that doesn't mean that that you un- that you understand them completely because obviously Mike was oblivious yeah. to the danger that he was in. Anyway, two days after the disappearance, Mike and Denise told his mother. So this is two days before the disappearance. And I say disappearance because he disappeared first, but he was murdered and they just made it look like a disappearance. Mike and Denise told his mother, Cheryl, this is our famous mother that we're going to be talking about, as well as his brother, Nick, that he and Denise were planning to have another child soon. Cheryl recalled that Mike had excitedly told his mom that he was taking his young family on a cruise to Hawaii in 2001 and that he was going to travel to Jamaica for work as well. And he was a happy man with a happy life and a future to plan. And he felt great about everything. So, I mean, sometimes when I hear this, I think that maybe he and Denise were hitting a rough patch and then they patched it up and made future plans and they were all excited about, you know, life again. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a possibility. I also think some of the, you know, other family annihilation cases that we've looked at, there's been mention of this idea of the the plot becoming fixed in the murderer's mind, right? Whichever spouse or family member is yeah. going to do the killing. There's a moment before it where, you know, investigators often have mentioned this idea that, well, the plan was fixed in his mind at that point, or the plan was fixed in their mind at that point. So maybe Mike was being fed things by these people who would soon become his murderers to just because they had already fixed their plan. I don't know. That was kind of what I was thinking when I, when we had discussed this before, that he's in this elated period. Maybe they had had a discussion and he is feeling very recommitted and excited because that's what the person he was talking to intended. That's what his spouse was trying to make him feel like. I don't know. Absolutely. You know, when I look back on uh, his childhood and his time in high school, He's just such a striver, even as a worker, he's a striver. And the idea that somebody is going to become preoccupied and derailed by hateful thoughts and maybe fights probably was not something that he was accustomed to. Right. I mean, his mama and his dad, right up until the time that that his dad died, they just were totally focused on their children. They were running a child-centered life. And... uh, you know, everything was about the future. And so maybe that was behind the excitement is that, you know, he was kind of like feeling this, I can understand that I've got everything all mapped out and I'm going to strive to achieve those things. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. So let's talk about Mike's disappearance. And again, I say disappearance and not murder because At first, it was a disappearance, and it stayed a disappearance for many years. According to Mike's wife, Denise Williams, on the morning of December 16, 2000, a Saturday, her husband woke early, leaving the house on Centennial Oak Circle well before dawn, boat in tow, 
to go duck hunting at Lake Seminole. Uh, now, Lake Seminole is a large reservoir approximately 50 miles west of Tallahassee, located in the southwest corner of Georgia along its border with Florida, where there are other streams that merge to form the Apalachicola River. And later that day, after duck hunting, Mike and Denise were going to go celebrate their sixth wedding anniversary. Now, I know this lake, Caroline, at least the 1960s version of this lake. It is full of old stumps and mosquitoes if it's summer. And there are alligators in the green, murky water and lots of weedy hydrilla beds and places to get hung up in. Now, hydrilla is a very invasive native to Asia, and even in the 1960s, it was prolific in lakes and causing a real problem. A lake like this brings in a lot of ducks, especially in the fall and winter. And if you're hunting or fishing in your aluminum boat, you have to know what you're doing to avoid a, a fatal disaster. Uh, so it's, it's a very treacherous tricky place to be, but it's worthwhile to people who have those skills because they can get, they can bag their limit in no time flat of ducks or fish. Fish like the hydrilla a whole lot. They can hide in there. I'm still hung up on the Apalachicola. That's funny. Appalachia and Pensacola, is that what that is a hybrid of? (laughs) Appalachicola? Um, I don't know where that uh, name comes from, but I'm guessing it's from uh, Native Americans who lived there before. Oh, had okay. named it I, that. I just like it. It's Wait real... till you get to the Chattahoochee. <laughs> I just south. Uh, you know, the house so I grew up in language. was yeah. on that Chattahoochee River, not right on the river, but you know, if you wanted well, to go anywhere, you had to go across the Chattahoochee. Chattahoochee. It's just so they kind of sound to me like, um, you know, Native American. Uh, names that had been around a long time. Yeah, most likely. Anyway, by afternoon of this day, Denise called her father to tell him that Mike had not returned. That says something about her that, Mm -hmm. you know, why didn't you call 911? Why didn't you uh, get in your car and go down to where he, I don't know. Just her her father's going to take care of everything, I guess. I'm sorry, I'm being mean to Denise because I know that what she really is. Anyway, word got to Brian Winchester, Mike's best friend, and Brian's father. Together, Brian and and Mike uh, went to the area of the lake where they knew Mike frequently went duck hunting. In fact, most of the time, Mike and Brian hunted together. They found his 1994 Ford Bronco near a remote boat launch in Jackson County on the uh, Florida side. And after investigators with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission, too many letters, Caroline, I'm just going to call them Fish and Wildlife uh, for our, in our podcast. Anyway, they were called. A search began. Uh, but soon it had to be called off because a storm blew in. So... In the initial search investigation that was handled by the Fish and Wildlife, since it had been reported to them as a missing hunter, the agency handled the case that way, focusing on search and rescue or recovery. 
quote, we did not have a whole lot to go on except that there was an empty boat and the guy didn't show up. One of the agency officers recalled later, and this was after he had retired and he was just thinking about it. There was nothing there that we had from the scene that suggested foul play at all. So, you know, it's just looking like a very benign sort of guy who's gone hunting by himself had a mishap. Deputies with the Jackson County Sheriff's Office were present, but they primarily worked in a supporting role to the Fish and Wildlife at that point, at that very beginning point. And of course, Brian and his father were there searching. As work got out, more and more friends and of Mike appeared at the lake to find him. So, uh, you know, some of these investigations, some of these uh, searches were, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of people out looking for Mike. So they just couldn't believe that he would drown. They just thought, no, that he didn't drown, but they couldn't find him either. Searches focused on 10 acres of the lake surrounding the cove where William's truck was parked. His boat was soon found roughly 225 feet from the ramp by a helicopter pilot who initially assumed it was a boat uh, used in the search. And the ramp was just a, this ramp was just a small little wood jut out from the banks. And it had really seen better days, Caroline. I mean, not many people used it as a ramp, but that's, that's where they found his boat. So the ramp would prove to be I'm going to call it a spiritual clue in this case. I'm just going to call it that right now. And that's my word for it, this ramp. But back to the search. It was really Brian who found the boat because he was able to identify it immediately as Mike's boat. And in fact, he was standing by it and found it when the helicopter spotted it and gave everybody the coordinates. So uh, Brian... Uh, is out there looking uh, as a cover. Right. He and Denise have done something and set this all up. Well, and do you think he was near where he knew some, something was to be found because he wanted to be somewhat in control of the finding of it? Oh, yeah. 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 He's a controller. Yeah. Very much so. We haven't seen much of him to really draw that conclusion. So I'm skipping ahead, but, you know, for a man to write a million-dollar life insurance policy against his, with his best friend and his wife and then turn around and do something to him to cause this kind of community search for this beloved man, Mike, Yeah. Uh, if you told me that you're just guessing that he was a control freak, I would say, yeah. <laughs> Uh, like that's diabolical. But this finding though. of the boat, being the one to find the boat, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's like mastermindy, gonna... chilly kind of level of control. It's beyond control at that point. That's like weird. <laughs> yeah, he's he's making things happen before they happen naturally, and we're going to see that over and over and over again in this case. So, after retrieving the boat. Investigators found Mike's shotgun still in its case, but no sign of Mike himself. 
The cove is locally believed to have been an orchard before the Chattahoochee and the Flint Rivers and Spring Creek were dammed to create the lake, Lake Seminole. It took its name Stump Field from the many remaining stumps that protruded above and below the waterline, requiring careful handling of a powerboat in that area. Searchers thus assumed that Mike had hit a stump with his boat. He had fallen out. He'd sunk into waters 8 to 12 feet deep when his waders filled up. And then he drowned when he was able to extricate himself, when he was not able to extricate himself. And this happens a lot, actually. Waders are impossible to take off in the water. And if you can't get them off, they turn into tombs for your feet and down you go. Can you imagine? Yeah, that freaked me out when I read that. I thought, well, there's another item I'm never going to put on. Like, wait, I didn't know that, that you couldn't get them off. I would just assume you throw those suspenders off and they just fall off in the water. You know, they get stuck. But then that part about the I think it might be a suction, water suction thing. I don't really know. I'm not a, I'm not, it's physics. So uh, the water's too deep in the physics pond for me. So, well, I mean, wear by those all accounts, that is true. You don't want to go in the water with your waders on because you're going to get drowned. Man, the world's treacherous. Ugh. It is. People do not have any business going into a lake like this with a powerboat and yet, unless they, from a young age, learned how to deal with it. Yeah. So it's, um, anyway, had Mike Williams drowned, his body would have been expected to eventually float to the surface, making it easier to discover. Investigators assured the Williams family that his body would surface like other drowning victims, within three to seven days. So I wonder how that conversation went. Like, hey, it's okay, because his body's just going to be floating, you know, that gets all bloated, and it's going to float to the top. And we'll, I, you know, I don't know how they had that conversation, but I hope it wasn't chipper. Like, hey, it could be worse. Right. You know, and, it's not a mine shaft. And it's we have the lake. To- got to be realistic. It's not the body that comes up. It is portions of the body because as tissues get wet, they sever from each other. Like, I mean, it's gross to think about realistically. Yeah. Is possible. It is gross. You're right. How did the conversation go? Like, we plan on finding a, a body or remnants of a body within seven days. I don't know. It's, oh, this is awful. I know. And I mean, you know, if you know a body's going to float out, don't you just leave somebody on watch so that body's just not floating out there all by itself? What about the alligators? Know. Aren't they going to be looking for bodies too? <laughs> and then they told them that within, uh, then the, you know, the investigators told the Williams family that, you know, it's going to come up within three to seven days, God almighty, and perhaps longer due to the cold front that had moved in after the first night's storm. So it could be, okay, it could be three days, it could be seven days, it could be infinite days, but nevertheless, nobody ever surfaced through the search and just, you know, so they just kept looking for a live mic or a dead mic or, you know, rumors were running around all through the community that, you know, he got eat, he got ate by that gator. He got ate by the gator. That's what I would think. Because there are alligators in that. Oh yeah. Pond. And you know, I'm I'm scared of alligators, but there are snapping turtles. And if anybody has ever been bitten by a snapping tur- turtle, you know uh 
you know, they can eat a body pretty fast. Well, it's horrible. Yeah. A snapping turtle, I'm thinking, is taking chunks out when it snaps you. Not just a bully, but. I know. You know, they say the South is mysterious and it's also um, kind of dark in its history. And not just uh, the uh, slavery and the Civil War and the things that are going on today in the South to roll back civil liberties and all of those things. Uh, the South is a very mystical sort of place, and it's because of these creatures. Mm-hmm. Like These creatures black. are lurking just beneath the surface or on rocks if, when they're sunning themselves. Yeah. So, Caroline, just imagine how poor Denise must be suffering because she would not be able to access any of that insurance money until they had found his body if he was dead. And, of course, I'm saying that with a dripping acid from my tongue. Yeah. 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 I don't like Denise. No, it's really awful. I just, you know, I can't I can't listen to these cases without thinking about, like, just leave them. Like, there's no, in my mind, there is no way murder's on the table. I just, I don't understand it. I don't. Just leave him. You're not happy? Leave him. Like, I, yeah. Yeah, I think that's why we're so curious about what the, what, what, what kind of person, because I want to be able to spot it. That's it. I mean, I just, and yeah, this is awful. It's just awful. Remember what I said about uh, Brian Winchester, that he was, he appeared to me to always be forcing something to the surface, uh, literally and figuratively, that would pop up on its own in its own time. If he knew where it was, he just couldn't stand it. Well, now we're going to start getting into some of that stuff. Ten days into the search, a camouflage pattern hunting hat was found, but it could not be connected to Mike Williams. Uh, Efforts continued until the search was called off in early February. So, Caroline, that is three months of searching. Three months. Oh, my gosh. That That says a lot about how much Mike was cared for. Oh, big time. I imagine this person as like a staple in his community. And I say that oh, yeah. for a couple of reasons. He's doing the property appraisal. That has you out in the field. That has you working with a diverse set of business owners, residential citizens. Like, And then you're a hunter. That's a whole community. You've lived your whole life here. You know, I mean, oh, he, yeah. I see him as like knowing everybody and everybody knows him, you know. He, uh, you know, it has since uh, been suggested So over the years, it was suggested that the search might have continued had Denise Williams indicated any interest in continuing the search. Whoa. So she's just, you know, acting like, eh. Well, and that's after three months? She's just kind of like, I'm over it? That does seem a little bit soon. Uh Uh-huh. When you were going to have that time, the case was still considered open. Nothing in the investigation or search and rescue efforts had produced any definitive evidence of a boating accident or a fatality. As of this date, read a final report of this three months of searching, and that was issued in late February 2001. I want to say a few words. Uh. Caroline, if I can, about why I was drawn to this case. 
because, you know, there are a lot of family murders, a lot of them domestic violence oriented, some of them drug addiction driven um, that we don't do. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do cases that we're drawn to. And I was drawn to this case because of Cheryl Williams, Mike's mom. Uh, she went to Lake Seminole with other searchers after the main search was over with. Any mom would do that for her son if her son was missing in a lake and presumed dead. I, I'm not real sure I could leave that lake. I, but yes, I was just thinking the same thing. Nothing else in my life is going to happen except for this lake getting drained. I'm going to figure this out, you know. Right. I don't even know if they can drain a lake like that. Well, you know, figure that it's out. It's not a natural lake. It's, yeah. it's and anyway, <laughs> at one point during these, these uh, missing hunts for Mike that his mom put together, she walked out onto what I called the spiritual dock. It was worn out. It was creaking. She walked out over the murky and dangerous waters onto what she called a piece of wood. She heard a voice, a thought, a message. I'm not in the lake, Mom. You can't find me in this lake. And she told everyone as much. My son is not in that lake, she said. She's in her 70s now, and when her son Mike disappeared, she was in her 50s. She had to live 17 years more from the day he disappeared before she found him. But during those 17 years, she did more than talk. And I'll get into what this magnificent mother did for her son, stepping onto that piece of wood dock and hearing the message that Mike would not be found in the lake. He's not there. She always thought the message meant he was alive, and she kept looking for him and looking for him, and boy, did she. She looked for him. And in fact, this is why I have named this episode a triumph of devotion, because she was like an engine that couldn't quit when it came to finding her son. So getting back to Mike. Searchers and law enforcement believe that Mike had drowned after accidentally falling out of the boat. His body would be only one of 80 known deaths in the lake that never had been found. 80? So in other words, you're going to brag on how many bodies you found in the lake and you've recovered all these bodies, except for 80, which is a very low number. Yeah, and what... That's shocking to me that you've managed to recover everybody except his. I mean, that is divine intervention as far as I'm concerned. My goodness. They found everybody but 80. There's still 80, you know, I guess, eaten by gators and snapping turtles bodies in there. Oh, I thought you said that there were 80 known deaths and they found all 80 bodies. I thought that is a miracle. No. No, they have No, there have been so many people, these innumerable souls who have been found by floating to the surface, I guess. Oh. But 80 remain is a, is a small fraction is the way I'm taking it, that it's a small fraction of people that have not been recovered from this lake. And that number is 80. I'm just never going to go to Florida, probably, but I'm definitely not going into lakes with, it's the alligators. That's where you're getting eaten 
and never recovered, I think. Yeah, and they don't eat you all at once. They take you down to the bottom and they roll you around and, and then they, now that you're dead, part. they're going to uh, hide your body. Oh, nice. <laughs> Real nice. Uh, the head of a private search firm that supplemented official efforts near the end of the search offered a possible explanation. So, quote, with the wildlife around, I would guess that the alligators have dismembered and have stored the remains in a location that we would not be able to find, he wrote in a report. Early searchers had reported seeing many alligators, and some of the officials were willing to accept the possibility. Quote, everyone knows the lake is full of alligators, said Fish and Wildlife David Arnett. And you look for other answers. Why hasn't this body appeared? And it was suggested that William's body could have been caught in the lake's dense underwater hydrilla beds. It was, you know, hydrilla, Caroline, grows from the bottom of the lake all the way up in these streamers, and they Mm. grow very close together. Yeah. So, I mean, you you know, it's great if you're a fish. Yeah, but you like, are there. they like viney? Is that what he's saying? Like, they're you viney, sort of from the, they float up to the top. That, you know, they're just starting at the bottom where they're rooted and then they float up to the top like a streamer. Okay. So you can get And all- the lake is compact with them. Yeah. It was suggested that perhaps William's body had become entangled in the beds of dense hydrilla beneath the lake's surface and then found by the alligator later with turtles and catfish finishing what? the alligators had left behind. Denise Williams, who had avoided media attention during the search for her husband, accepted that her husband was dead. She arranged for a memorial service for Mike to be held the day after the search ended. So in June, an angler in the Stumpfield area discovered a pair of waders floating in the lake. And divers were called to search the area and then recovered from the lake bottom a lightweight hunting jacket, a flashlight, and in one of the jacket pockets there was a hunting license with William's name and signature. However, there were no teeth marks or any other damage on the waders, and none of the recorded excuse me, recovered items showed signs of having been in the water for anything like the period Williams had been missing, and there was no DNA evidence found to link the clothing to him. So, Caroline, this just really bothers me. Knowing what I know now about Mike's death, it really makes my blood boil that none of these investigators read these finds quote unquote, as planted. Right. But just stepping back a moment, let's say Columbo the detective were to find these so-called clues. What do you think he would think about the condition of the wallet with no teeth marks and the boots and all the other stuff with no slime on them? What do you think he would say? Well, if we're talking Columbo, he's noticing right away those details of these don't look like they've been in the water very long. That's weird. Why would someone put the belongings in the water later and who was the someone who did that i mean that of course but i will say for benefit of the doubt that i can't imagine what investigators are up against every time they get a call because particularly like calls like this because 
you have to right away assume who's telling me the truth and who's augmenting the truth for their own benefit. And then like like they said in the beginning, you know, you we took it at face value. This was a search and recovery, like a rescue operation. We took it as that. So so their mind is switched to look for things that are related to that. It's not necessarily going to turn on that that reflex they have when they're detecting for homicide investigations. It's not it's not the same questions aren't going to come up because that's not the brain they've put on, right? So to speak. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm upset about this next part. <laughs> because uh, a week after they found these clues, so-called clues, a Leon County judge granted Denise Williams' petition to have Mike declared legally dead on the basis of those recovered items and an assumption that alligators and other water life had consumed the body in its entirety. So, you know, normally, Caroline, you have to wait seven years, right? Oh, I didn't for know. For someone missing to be declared dead. Okay. Not mm-hmm. Denise. Not Denise. She's going to get her way as soon as possible. And again, maybe it's not her, maybe it's Brian, but this idea of taking a flashlight, taking a clothing, taking his fishing license in a wallet, taking waders and putting them in the water to be found by an angler. But I in the don't same, know. that just stinks on ice to me. Like to me, it's like that's that's like duh, tidal pools one hundred and one. Like I mean, the water moves. These things wouldn't stay together if they even if they had fallen together. Some of them would move. The lighter weight stuff would move one way. The heavier stuff might stay. You know what I mean? People kick it around. I it's it is yeah. assume this big pile of items just stays all together. How convenient. So the court decision allowed Denise Williams to immediately proceed with claims on her husband's life insurance policies, from which she would receive a total of $1.5 million. Wow. Five years later, she married. Guess who she married? Okay, I'll tell you. She married Brian Winchester. Oh, God. Who had sold Mike the biggest policy a few months before he disappeared. And the couple went on to live in the same house where Denise and Mike had lived prior. Denise and Brian mostly declined to discuss the case publicly. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, wouldn't want to slip up. I mean, no. So while Denise and Brian were getting on with their lives, Mike's mother was busy trying to find Mike. There was a private search team that surmised that Mike had been eaten by the alligators. That was their theory. And this team had been, in fact, hired near the end of the original search by William's mother, Cheryl. But when they she got that report back, she refuted that by researching that alligators, how do alligators live? When do they eat? She found out that alligators do not kill in cold water. And Mike had gone missing when the water was cold. Remember, it was December. Yeah, that's good information. Yeah. So Cheryl was not consulted at all about Denise's petition to the court to declare her son Mike dead. This and the fact that she did not believe that alligators were involved in Mike's death, she was making it very loud and clear to everyone who would listen that Mike was not dead in the lake. Cheryl believed that Mike was alive 
because her cosmic message on the weathered board dilapidated pier that she was still not convinced that he had drowned in the lake. But her attempts to bring about further investigation were unsuccessful. She has stated that she received threats to discourage her from continuing to look for him. And over the next several years, she investigated on her own when she was not busy at work operating her daycare out of her home because she needed money to run this investigation. She ran advertisements in local papers, Caroline. She put up billboards seeking information. Good for her. She mortgaged her little trailer where they had always lived to do this work. That and continued to run the daycare. And after Mike was declared dead, all the subsequent investigations of the case resulted exclusively from her efforts. Yeah, I mean, once he's dead, the police actually, can, I mean, that's a technical bind. That they, how, how can we, you know, as taxpayers say that we support the police researching things that are definitively, you know, determined already? So that sucks. That's, that's sucky. Yeah, she believed her son might still be alive. Remember, she believes that this message that she got from the other side said, I'm not in this lake. Don't look for me in the well, lake. I'm curious about the interpersonal exchanges between her and Denise, if any were had, because it is shocking to me that Denise would not involve other family members and other friends even of Mike in the, look, guys, this is what I need to do to move my family forward. Because that's not an unreasonable decision for the spouse to have. I mean, it is when you're the murderer. But if you're not and you just are the, you know, you're the left spouse, you know, it's not an an unreasonable thing to say, look, I need to get this done because we have a child. I need to continue to live my life for this child and I need that money. That's one conversation. But to not even say anything and you've declared this woman's child dead, like that's that seems like a strained relationship at best, you know. Between oh, it's eight. awful. It's yeah. terrible. She, uh, um, Cheryl said, you know, throughout this whole period, she got criticized a lot for not admitting that Mike is dead. She gave an article to the Tallahassee Democrat newspaper in 2007. She said, all I know is I cannot stop looking for him until I find him. Her efforts had severely strained her relationship with her former daughter-in-law. Denise told Cheryl outright that if you do not stop investigating Mike's death, your granddaughter is going to be denied access to you as a grandmother, even though her granddaughter was the only part of Mike that Cheryl still had. Oh, wow. Poor Cheryl. My God. Like triple victimized here. Ugh. Then it's never Cheryl right did not stop, children. Caroline. Yeah. She didn't stop. It's... And she was cut out of Ainsley's life permanently. Ainsley was raised believing that her grandmother was out of her mind. Yeah. Crazy. Cuckoo. You can't be around her. She's sick. That and... is how she was raised. And well, honestly, Mike's was daughter. Probably, it's not, it probably wasn't a hard story to tell. Because in reading this, Cheryl my God, I would have gone insane. You lost your son. Your daughter-in-law is heartlessly moving on and she's not allowing you to stay and 
get your answers figured out from what has happened. I can't imagine any family, whether murder is involved or not, if you don't have a body and you just simply are asked to let it go after someone you love has disappeared, I could never, I could never sign me up for the psycho class because I'm going cuckoo about it until I find either a body, some kind of an answer, some resolution, something I can cling to as this is what happened. So the fact that Denise doesn't really care and she's going to threaten this granddaughter, that deprives Ainsley. That doesn't... And she carried out her threat. She carried out her threat. It just shows you her character. I mean, that's, to me, children have to develop their own relationships with their in-laws. Now, if there's abuse or some scary whatever, and maybe... Denise can sell that she felt like it was too much psychosis for her child, but that does, I don't I don't buy that. Given the other facts, but I just feel for Cheryl. I feel for her. This is oh, I do too. You know, there are a lot of uh, documentaries about this case, and I've watched them all that I could find. And Cheryl is a short in stature, and again, by the time the case became documentary, document. Terry uh, Fodder. She was in her 70s in a wheelchair, uh, but she was very short in stature and she had uh, shock white hair that she kept in ponytails uh, or, I mean, pigtails, pigtails. Oh, fine. And she, um, she, she was demonized by Denise and she was demonized to her daughter, Ainsley, Cheryl's granddaughter. And um, I think that just the whole package of uh, shunning her um, is part of what drew me to this case, is that Cheryl had no power. She had very little money. She... um, was a widow. She uh, was fighting a dragon. Oh, yeah. And how is she going to, a court ordered that her son was dead. I mean, that that is no power. You are now fighting for a narrative that does not exist. And, oh, that's hard. So getting on with what happened, the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, also known as FDLE, much shorter Uh, I'm good with this abbreviation, FDLE, Department of Law, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, agreed to reopen the case after all the lobbying that Cheryl Williams had done. In retrospect, many officers agreed with Cheryl. They started telling a truth that they had kept to themselves, that the circumstances surrounding Mike Williams' apparent drowning four years before was very unusual, and they were strongly at odds with the conclusion that um, the, the the conclusion that everybody was drawing, which was that the boat launch where his Bronco was found, which he would presumably have used to put his boat in the lake, Caroline, that was an undeveloped patch of mud. Mm-hmm. Yet nearby was a finished concrete launch that he had been u- used to using in the past. Another aspect of it that didn't make sense to these investigators, but they didn't say anything until Sheriff, uh, Cheryl gave him a backbone, was that the storm the night that he was reported missing had westerly winds 
that should have blown the abandoned, unmoored boat across the lake to the Georgia side. When the boat was recovered, the engine was off, yet the gas tank was full. According to a representative of the manufacturer, if the engine had been running when Williams allegedly fell out of the boat, as investigators had theorized, it should have stayed on, meaning the engine should have stayed on, and the boat would be running in circles until the fuel was exhausted. Something sounds fishy on that deal, the representative said when the situation was described to him. See? So Cheryl is the only person who's willing to work this hard and spend this kind of time and money and soul, her soul, putting her soul into it to draw back the curtain enough for these other people to say, yeah, you know, she's kind of got a point. Right. So investigators also learned that Williams didn't usually hunt alone. And even if an alligator had defied all known gator behavior and eaten Williams' body, as another investigator uh, uh, put it, it would likely have left something behind. Williams was five foot, 10 inches. He weighed 170 pounds. Investigators concluded that any theory that attributed the missing body to alligators and any other aquatic animals is a stretch. It would be very, very unusual to have the complete disappearance of a grown man. Yeah, right. Because the alligator's not, there's something's going to get left behind, right? It's not going to take the whole, I mean, some scrap of something. That it, you know, I just want to say right here, because what this brings up for me around the law enforcement kind of easily being swayed to just make this all go away, in a sense. I mean, obviously, that's easy to say in the aftermath of figuring out what really happened. But it it just speaks to like the Lori Vallow thing, where when we looked at some of the police video of her early on, where her husband, who she later had killed, her ex-husband, uh, he had reported her and she was pulled into the police for questioning and she managed to flirt her way out of that. Right. I mean, these, and I'm not saying that like officers are like, Oh, they're so bad. They got susceptible to flirt. No, every human being is susceptible to the charm of another human being. So a law enforcement officers really have to be big jerks. When the cute lady's flirting with you and making you laugh, you have to think and you have to train your brain to say, she's probably the murderer. And have that be what happens when pretty women charm you around conversations of about their spouse's deaths. You know what I mean? I just feel like that. I know what you mean. I'm your mother and you're my daughter. And both of us have a nice dose of, am I being manipulated right now? Or is this the best price you can actually get? Right. <laughs> am I being manipulated right now? But, you know, we have that. Right. But not everybody's got that. No. And even some people who do got that, they don't want to admit they got that. Right. Or they mean so absolutely. Right? And then <laughs> you never know what the officer on the beat, what kind of pressure they're getting from their boss, who's probably higher up, is higher up and closer to the politics of everything. That's right. Yes. Yes. So I don't know what the politics were around, you know, a three month search for Mike Williams, but maybe it got too expensive and they had to shut it down and they were told just shut up about it. I don't know. I mean, that, yeah. But you couldn't shut the mother up and thank God for that. Yeah. 
Uh, so the waiters discovered almost six months after William's disappearance, and I'm just going to have to interject, the reason that they showed up is because, you know, Denise wanted him declared dead. But anyway, they showed up. <laughs> that further undermined the alligator theory. While the diver who retrieved them reported that they were in the area of disturbed weeds with alligator excrement nearby, ooh, consistent with the original belief that Williams had drowned while wearing the waders, he allowed that it was anybody's guess as to whether they had been later planted in that spot because they did just quote unquote appear. They just appeared. Investigators' suspicions were further raised by the waiter's condition, undamaged, without any teeth marks, lacking any of the residues that would be expected to accumulate on an object submerged in a lake for as long as the waiters had supposedly been. I had one word for that called slime. Investigators filtered the water in them after they were recovered and did not find any human remains. Well, I mean, you know, they did kind of do that. That's, a, no, that's an extra step they didn't have to do, but they did. Why would Mike be wearing his waders while he was driving the boat? Yeah. The hunting jacket and flashlight that were found, likewise, were in much better condition than they had been expected. Caroline, the flashlight that was uncovered in these planted clues, you know, I think they were planted, but they were... They were found all together, the waders, the clothes, the, the fishing license, the wallet, the, the, the flashlight. The flashlight still worked. Huh. That's kind of a really good flashlight. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was waterproof or maybe it was right. just, oh God, I don't know. But like, anyway. I mean, even after a while, after three months though is really how long that flashlight should have been underwater. But really, it was probably a week at that point because of yeah. plotting. I mean, all I could say is I'm biased because I know how it ended up. Right. But even if you weren't biased, these things really add up to something's fishy. Yeah. In spite of all of these weird facts, the new investigation was made extremely difficult by the deficiencies of the original search when criminal activity had not been considered. They did not protect the scene at all, recalled a Williams friend with law enforcement experience who had been part of the original search. They botched it, he said. By the time investigators began to realize that they should have been asking more questions, the opportunity was gone. Williams, Bronco, and the boat had been returned to the family and friends, and the footsteps of many volunteers and searchers were all over the lakeshore, and that had made it impossible to collect any evidence from that area, and the items recovered from the lake had not been retained by law enforcement. So without any evidence of William's body, it was kind of impossible for police to make a case. Despite the failure of a third investigation to discern the fate of her son, Cheryl Williams persisted. Her efforts led to the Investigation Discovery Cable Channel during a segment on Michael, they did a segment on Michael's disappearance and the later investigations in late 2011. So the pressure must be getting felt over at Brian and Denise's house. 
because starting on New Year's Day in 2012, Cheryl began writing one letter a day to Governor Rick Scott, asking him to either have another agency besides FDLE investigate or please appoint a special prosecutor to do so. After she had written 200 letters without even an acknowledgement that they had been received, she didn't give up. She began inquiring personally, why haven't I heard from you? Why haven't I heard from you? It turned out that the governor's office had forwarded them unopened to FDLE's headquarters where they were placed in the case file. This fierce mama, Cheryl Williams, was just outraged. She was outraged. She is quoted as having said to anybody who would listen, the news, the papers, anybody, they could not have hurt me more if they had punched me in the face. Well, yeah. I mean, turns out, doesn't matter who the governor is, that office just fails. Fails its people every time. Like, wow. Why don't you make a sign that says, I don't care? I mean, instead of just having everybody your actions indicate that to her, my God, I'd be one letter a day for 200 days, Caroline. Well, obviously, that governor couldn't have done the same thing. <laughs> I mean, what a horrible, like Cheryl for governor. Let's get on it. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Yeah. Just, I hope this in 2012, Denise and Brian Winchester separated. Yeah, pressure's getting to you people. Anyway. <laughs> It was reportedly due to his sex addiction. Um, <laughs> Caroline, I had to look that up. I did not really know what is, is there really such a thing as a sex addiction? I mean, sex addiction. Yeah, Charlie Sheen had it. That's how we all know. That was his, that was one of his many like winning, you know, the whole episode oh crazy i did not know that yes that well that explains yeah i mean i went through the winning phase i just i couldn't wait for the next day to see what he was going to do live on tv next oh yeah he would bring like prostitutes to his family thanksgiving dinners it was it was he was out there for a while but one of the things that came about out of that story was that sex sex addiction is a very real um disorder a lot of people suffer yes. from it. So. That's what I found out when I looked it up, is that you get fixated on a behavior. You get in a cycle about that behavior, or they could be just thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, and you can't stop. You can't stop. So who knows what um, Brian was fixated on. How about I kill and then I have sex. I kill yeah. and then I have sex. I don't know. Could have been the murder. Those are just my thoughts. That brought it on. Yeah. Anyway, she filed for divorce in 2015. Brian openly opposed it. Nope, I'm not going to pay any attention to that. He had to be ordered by the court to comply, and as part of that order from the court, he was to he was to provide an appraisal of the couple's house due to. Due early in August 2016. Now, that makes me so sad in a weird way because, you know, Mike was an appraiser. I thought this and it just brought up to me, oh, my God. Like but anyway, it really had nothing to do with Mike being an appraiser. He just was told by the court, you have to have an appraisal on your house. And that was going to be on August um, 5th in uh, 2016, or he was going to be in contempt. 
Well, on August 5th, the day when the appraisal had to be filed with the court, Denise left her home to drive to her job at Florida State University. So she's behind the wheel of her car. And while she was taking, she was talking on the phone to her sister and she's driving her car while talking on the phone. Okay, that's not great. And then she saw in her rear view that someone was climbing over the back seat of her car. I mean, it turned out to be Brian. Okay. But that's one of my biggest fears is somebody's in the back seat of my car. Yeah. I always look in the back seat. It's like a habit I've given myself for that reason. Cause that's, yeah, that's my fear too. I think that's why you drive a little car, a convertible, because you're thinking nobody's going to be able to get in that back seat without me seeing it. Yeah. I don't want a lot of space to hide. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah, me, I've got a station wagon. I know. <laughs> SUV. I'm get, somebody's back there all the time, probably. I don't know. Anyway, it's scary. He took her phone away and began yelling directions at her. She did not comply until uh, he showed her a gun. She said later that he claimed that it was necessary since she was not taking his calls and, and he was blocking her, uh, she was blocking his text messages And instead of going where he wanted her to, she pulled into a CVS drugstore parking lot close to the door. And I'm thinking two things. That was smart. Yeah, that's very smart. Somebody's kidnapping you at gunpoint. You're going to want to go to the CVS and park by the drive-thru. Yeah. Or close to the door where the customers are in and out, in and out. She must know he's not going to shoot shoot her though I, I would be afraid of getting shot honestly and how did he he has shot someone before so like how I am surprised maybe she knows it. here maybe she knows a little more about Brian than we do. you know what I think it is I think that I think that Denise has uh control over him and she did not really believe that he would shoot her yeah she- I mean in other words until she gave him permission, would he really shoot her? Right. Yeah, I don't there know. There you go. Yeah, that may, that actually makes a lot more sense. Until she orders it. <laughs> it's not happening. Yeah. I don't know that she's necessarily a super courageous woman. Mm. I think that she thought, you know, I can outsmart this man. Mm. Because I've done it so many times before. And just lastly, before we move on, how long is, how long were they married? What was this, a 10-year, 15-year marriage before they've separated? Well, yeah, but they didn't get married for five years after the killing oh. because they didn't want to arouse anybody's suspicion. So they continued with their shenanigans, and they also wanted to build up interest on that $1.5 because that can draw interest of a sizable amount over time. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. So... uh Brian told her that he was planning to kill himself with the gun. He did not want the divorce. He felt he had nothing to live for if it went through. He assured her he did not want to kill her. And she was able to calm him down. And then she took him back to where he had parked his own truck at a nearby park. But before he went to his truck, Caroline, this is what he took out of Denise's car that he had put in there when he went and hid in that car. He took a tan sheet, like a bed sheet, a different colored plastic sheet, a spray bottle of bleach, and a tool from Denise's car. He took that with him to his to his truck. So I mean it looks to me like he was gonna kill her or planned to kill her. Yeah. Or wanted to kill her. I mean a spray bottle of 
bleach with like a plastic sh- you're not painting tan sh- <laughs> I mean I just maybe he's just a chronic bedwetter I don't know anyway Probably. after after she left after she left him there Brian then caught up to her again pulled up to her you know car in his truck and he apologized profusely Despite her promise to him not to tell police about the incident, she drove straight to police afterwards. Yeah. And after Denise filed a report against Brian kidnapping and threatening her, police investigated. And according to a friend of Winchester's who was later interviewed by police, Brian told him that he was becoming very concerned that as a result of the divorce, Denise would tell the police what she knew about, quote, this guy who died 10 or 12 or 15 years ago, end quote. Ooh, closing in. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, this is uh, 2012 that this is happening now. Brian was murdered in 2000, so it was 12 years, but he's talking to a friend, and so he's muddying it up as, well, I don't know, some guy died 10, 12, 15 years ago. I know something about it. Um, anyway, Brian was arrested and charged with the kidnapping, domestic assault, armed, rob- armed burglary, and two charges being felonies. Denise requested protective orders, saying that she feared for her life and her daughter's. And after a hearing the next week at which she said she could neither eat nor sleep since the incident, the court decided to hold Brian without bond, pending trial on the kidnapping, the domestic assault, the armed robbery and all that. So Cheryl Williams expressed to everybody that she was hopeful that this development would lead to the resolution of her son's disappearance. So. You know, she's kind of thinking, okay, I. she probably thought all along that, well, that they had something to do with it, especially yeah. since they got married. Well, that, I mean, you know, I, how could they have ever gotten married, period? In my mind, like just given the circumstances of everything, it would have had to have been a different kind of organic circumstance. As it stands, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the conversations were like, but I would have been interested to hear Denise's conversations with anyone about the declaring of the death, Brian's conversations with anyone about anything. I mean, it's weird. The whole thing is a little bit funky. Cheryl Williams kind of, you know, she knew Brian because Brian was Mike's best friend since ninth grade. And she said to to the New York Daily News, Brian's not going to let Denise run around alone with all that money. I thought that was kind of funny. Yeah. And Denise, I mean, pardon me, Cheryl went on to say, I'm praying he doesn't commit suicide. I'm praying that he'll tell us what really happened. Yeah. I mean, she kind of got a sense that, you know, I know what's going on here. Yep. She added that she is alone among her family in holding out hope that her, that her son was still alive, but she's holding on to that hope. Something happened to him. Where is he? In December of 2017, Winchester, uh, Brian Winchester, was sentenced to 20 years in prison for the kidnapping, and he got some credit for time served, and he was going to have to have 15 years probation after that. So really, it's a 35-year sentence with with 20 years locked up. And his attorney told the court that he was suicidal that day, 
due to not only the divorce, but also his mother's recent terminal cancer diagnosis, and also his son, his teenage son from his first marriage, had decided to move in with his mother. Um, he just, you know, in fact, this attorney was just trying to play on the pity of the jury and, and try to get a 10-year uh, minimum. Yeah. But uh, prosecutors countered. They wanted him locked up for 45 years, but he was locked up for 20, and then he had 15 years probation after that. He's currently uh, imprisoned at the Wakula Correctional Institution. Brian led authorities to Mike's body at the end of Dead End Gardner Road in northern Leon County, five miles from where he grew up, he being Mike. So part of what's going on here, Caroline, is that Brian is going to give up uh, where is Mike's body because everybody's thinking kind of the same thing because this mother is running around saying, they, this is about these two people. They, they, they've done something with my son. Yeah. She still thought he was alive, but they've done something with my son. Yeah. So he led them to the body. On October 18th, the team of search dogs and officers finally found Mike Williams' remains in the piles of dirt stacked on ply, plywood sheets. Uh, so Brian likes to use sheets, you know, sheets in the car with Denise, sheets of plywood. Anyway, a, a FDLE source told the Tallahassee Democrat that 98% of his bones were recovered. Okay. They were all very well preserved, as well as some of the clothing that he had been wearing, such as winter gloves and booties. Booties are kind of like the shoes that you wear while you're driving the boat, and then you put your waders on over the booties. Two DNA tests matched the remains to a mother, the Cheryl, to Cheryl's DNA. So after that, uh, my favorite thing, Denise Williams was arrested. Yeah, hootie. On May 8th, 2018. Denise Williams was arrested at Florida State University as she left work to celebrate her daughter's 19th birthday, minutes after a grand jury had indicted her on charges of first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. Brian Winchester agreed to testify against her. Cheryl Williams, Mike's justice-seeking mother, was told that her son Mike was dead. She was destroyed, Caroline. She was just destroyed. Just destroyed. She thought the message on the pier meant that he was alive. Yeah. Well, and regardless, because it's reached a resolution <clears throat> that, not that she was looking for, but that, that all of that drive was striving for, she now has, you know, a decade's worth of grief that's about to wash over her and no shield like an investigation to keep alive or a son to find. She doesn't have that as a distraction anymore. So I, I, here comes the wave. I mean, I just can't imagine, you know. I can't either. In June 2018, Denise Williams was ordered held without bond with a trial date for September 24th. Audio of Brian Winchester's interview with FDLE was played in court, and in it, Brian confessed to pulling the trigger, but claims the killing was all Denise's idea. 
Her defense argued that the tape should not have been admitted as evidence since Winchester was not charged with anything despite his admission. The prosecution said it simply asked him to tell the truth about what happened, and she went on trial in December. The state's star witness was Brian Winchester, who testified at length about he and Denise had never really ended their high school relationship, Uh even after they both married others. Kathy Thomas, and that was Winchester's first wife, told the jury that she had suspected the two of them were having an affair in the late 1990s when they frequently double-dated with Mike and Denise. So her, Kathy Thomas and Brian Winchester, as a married couple, were double-dating with Mike and Denise, and she picked up on it. They're having an affair. Brian said in his confession, a tape of which was played for the jury, that the affair had started in 1997, and it just snowballed, he said. Okay, here's what I want to say to you, Brian. No. Uh, Mike was not, this affair, this affair Mm -hmm. that led to the murder of Mike Williams, this affair was not due to gravity, okay? So when a snowball falls down the mountain, that's gravity. That causes it to pick up more snow. So here he here he's taking responsibility for the murder. Right. He's taking responsibility for the affair, but he's blaming it on gravity, basically. It just snowballed. In other words, I couldn't help myself. Something happened to me. The murder happened to oh, me. Yeah, yeah. That's a really great. I'm gonna try to remember that because oh my God, that that was a great way to, you know, because I think people we try to minimize our own feelings of guilt by saying these kitschy little phrases. Things just got out of hand. It started snowballing from there. But you're right. I couldn't like stop it. Me gravity came out of nowhere. <laughs> I couldn't stop it. So, you know, now this kind of fits in with the addiction thing. You're right. Yeah. He gets addicted and he thinks, well, oh, well, there's nothing I can do about these things. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm addicted. But he doesn't see it as addicted. He sees it as just snowball. And like you said, I mean, he uses the same tactic when he kidnaps Denise. You're making me do this to you. Why can't, why don't you make, why don't you, why are you hitting yourself? Absolutely. Why are you hitting yourself? Like, it's just, it's hard for you and I to process because that's just not a way that we're thinking. But actually, it's not hard for me. You know what they say? I can spot it because I've got it. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I try. I'm guilty of that sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, it's the brain's self-preservation. I'm not flawed. You're making me flawed. You know? Well, it's not that I don't think I'm flawed. It's that I sometimes give up trying to do what I know I should do because I want to do what I want to do. Yeah. And so then I said, well, it just came over me. Yeah, but you're talking about. And I think that's very yeah. human and it takes, yeah. it takes a lifetime to bust out of that. But know? I mean, murder shouldn't be on that spectrum of things that you're just going to no, do. No. do. I, <laughs> I think that's fine. Lurking in someone's car with, you know, sheets of plastic and a gun. That shouldn't be on the agenda. <laughs> Anyway, so anyway, after discreetly rekindling their relationship, rekindling their relationship, the two began to consider killing Mike so they could marry. As Denise's family frowned on divorce for religious reasons, she said no to that. And he he divorced his wife 
but she needed to have her her husband killed. So that's so they started talking about ways. So Denise suggested staging a boat accident on the Gulf of Mexico where they could throw both Mike and Kathy Thomas, his wife, overboard. But Winchester did not want to kill his wife. He did not want to kill the mother of his children. So he divorced her. And after rejecting plans for a murder at Mike's office, uh, meant to look like a robbery, Winchester hit on the idea of an apparent hunting accident because he had actually saved Mike's life from from, uh, quicksand, Caroline, when the two of them were hunting in Arkansas. So it occurred to him that had I not saved his life, he'd be dead. So now all I got to do is stage an accident and not be able to save him. Oh, wait a minute. I don't even have to be there. I'll be there. I'm going to be there, but I'm not going to let other people know I'm there. I mean, this is how this worked. This guy's And this is how it came to him, what he should do. So on the day that Mike disappeared, Winchester said he had enticed him to Lake Seminole. Hey, buddy, let's go to Lake Seminole. Okay. Out on the water. And of course, you know, Mike would have told Denise, I'm going to Lake Seminole with Brian. Brian. And Denise, what's Denise going to say? Oh, I know, because he's going to kill you. No, she's going to say, oh, okay, have a good time. Have a great time. Anyway, but she knew. So out on the water, he had gotten Mike to put his waders on. And then he pushed him out of the boat, thinking that he would be unable to surface and he would drown. But instead, Mike managed to get to a tree stump. So Winchester fired a single shotgun blast to his face. So now, you know, Mike knows that his best friend is killing him. Or trying to. I watched the trial. It was it was uh, on camera. And he actually got up there and said that he had turned the boat around in circles several times before getting up the guts to shoot him with the gun. Whoa. So since my, I know. So, you know, the devil made me do it, Caroline. That's what he's going to say. It was all Denise's idea. That part wasn't Denise's idea because that happened because Mike accidentally lived even though he had his waders on yeah so now since mike's death could no longer be passed off as a boating accident winchester buried the body where it was later found and then he cleared out his truck and went to a family christmas party oh my god and at that christmas party he he found out that there was a search underway and he, uh, you know, and he and his dad went out there and blah, 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 blah. And he found the boat and all that happened. And then he and Denise decided to slow it down after the accident so that they, they would just let that insurance money sit there and earn some interest. And that way they wouldn't be suspicious. And then the kidnapping that had led to his present imprisonment, he explained, was his reaction to fear that Denise would reveal the truth about what had happened to her first husband now that she and Brian were divorcing. So prosecutors also played a taped conversation in which Kathy Thomas, remember that was his wife that he was married to when he was cheating on, anyway, who was working with police at the time, so she, she was working with police, had told Denise she knew the truth. So she's calling up, she's calling up Kath, Kathy Thomas is calling up Denise on a recorded line for the police. And she told Denise, I know what you've done. I know what you've done. I know what you've done. 
said it over and over. Every time she called her, I know what you've done. And Denise uh, would always attempt to change the subject, except one day she said, what do you know? Oh, my God. Tell me, what do you know? So Assistant State Attorney John Fuchs said that this evasiveness, as well as Denise's dispassionate response when Winchester told her how he had killed Mike, demonstrated how cold-blooded she helped plan the crime that happened on her behalf. Denise's defense attorney argued in response that there was no physical evidence linking Denise to the crime and that it had been entirely Winchester's idea. He expressed incredulity that Winchester was not on trial despite having attempted to commit, admitted to committing the murder himself. But after four days of testimony, the jury took eight hours to convict Denise of all charges. So how do you like that new outfit you're going to be wearing, Denise? In February 2019, Denise was sentenced to life in prison. She did not speak or offer any argument on her behalf. The only person to address the court besides the lawyers was Cheryl Williams, who said that justice had finally been served and that Denise had taken not only her son, but also her granddaughter from her. She went on to say, and I saw this, 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 victim impact statement that she read. It was very long. And she said, every night I go to bed and I think about Mike clinging, freezing, clinging to that tree stump, watching as his best friend circles the boat and then picks up his rifle or shotgun or whatever, what picks up his gun and shoots him in the face. And was he thinking of me? Uh, yeah. Did he cry out for help? Right. Uh, that is what me. she has to live with every single day for the rest of her life. God. That was her impact statement. Denise was sentenced to life in prison. She did not speak or offer any argument. As I said before, five months later, Mike and Denise's daughter Ainsley was awarded all assets from her late father's estate the insurance monies and so forth due to Denise after her mother signed them order in order to avoid the prosecution on three counts of insurance fraud for the life insurance. Oh, so that's why she signed it over. It's not because her daughter now has. Yeah, to it was part of a deal. Them. It was part of a deal. We won't, we won't try you for that. If you'll give that money to Ainsley, because had she died with Mike, Ainsley would have gotten that money. Right. So there was a death. Right. But there was this idea that, well, Denise needs to pay that money back. Yeah. And so they went and had a, a, through negotiations, the insurance company paid Ainsley. Okay. The money. But there was a stipulation that she could not use one penny of that money on her mother's legal fees. Mm -hmm. And if she did, she would owe the state $150,000 penalty. Plus she would have to pay back the $1.5 million. Well, I think that or whatever was totally appropriate provision. Not one cent should be spent on Denise. Den- Denise is now imprisoned at the Florida Women's Reception Center. I bet that's just a party every day. You know, Florida, I don't think they run happy little clean little lots of crafts and plenty of continuing education courses. I don't know, but I don't think they do. But now Caroline, she appealed and she won part of her appeal. So her life sentence was ter- uh, 
was dismissed because uh, the the appellate court felt that there was no proof that she was part of the crime, that she did not commit murder, but she uh, was, her conviction for the conspiracy to commit murder was upheld. So she's spending 30 years. Um, Ainsley, the daughter, blames Mike Williams' mother, Cheryl, for the wrongful conviction of her mother. Oh, God. So Mike is lost, and so is Ainsley lost, as far as Cheryl is concerned. She waited 17 years to find out what happened to her son and to bring him home. She says today that she really thought that he was still alive all that time. But it it turns out he was in heaven with his daddy. Well, Cheryl, <clears throat> there's a special place waiting for you as well, I'm sure. That kind of dedication, tenacity, fortitude uh, to see it through. Ainsley doesn't know it, but she will someday, hopefully. But you're a savior. And, you know, can I just say that the part about Brian mentioning that divorce was not an option for religious purposes, I just feel like the Pope could do something in this arena to prevent future murders. If you just, if that's what it is that's preventing people from just walking away, find help. There is a a, a pastor, a preacher, whatever out there who's going to make it okay. But what I know is not okay across all religions, even atheists murder. Murder's not okay. So that isn't an option, even though Brian and Denise landed on it because divorce was so bad. But anyway. I agree. I mean, you know, I personally, my personal thought is that no no debt goes unpaid in the universe. Yes. I don't have a certainty that uh, entity called God or some other entity called the universe or some other entity called Yahweh, you know, to me, the language around this idea of we're not, you know, we're not here for no reason. Right. Uh, there is no uh, one creator. Right. I do get a sense that there's one creator, but even stronger than that, I get a sense that no debt goes unpaid in the universe. And since so many people get away with so much here on earth, yes. you know, that gives me hope for the life hereafter. I agree. I totally and I agree. hope that uh, everybody involved in hurting this man, Mike Williams, and everybody involved in hurting his mother, Cheryl, I just feel like they're not going to, it's not going to be good. No. It's not going to be good no, for I... them and Cheryl and... Uh, Mike will always be in my mind as, uh, and and the father, just the idea that we can afford a house now, so we have a choice, buy a house, or we could save and make sure our children get a very good education according to what we think would be good, and it seems to me like, you know, that was a good choice for them. Well, yeah, and Mike So anyway, Caroline, another family murder, another senseless family murder. It's true. But I think what was going on here was just, you know, the bare essentials, sex, greed, and uh, two people who thought that they were entitled. Yeah, that's, yeah. 
and one hero. Yes. Oh, that would be the hero. mom. All right, Caroline. I will talk to you in a couple of weeks and uh, about our next family murder. And in the meantime, um, time to say bye-bye. So bye-bye, Caroline. Bye-bye.